When you go through hard times, you won't explode. That's uh, that's the best news I've heard all day. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, I needed that children's sermon, so... um, so uh, we're going to start today looking at Second Peter, uh, and we're going to begin uh, right at the very beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, a few weeks ago when I announced that I was uh, trying to figure out what we were going to do after uh, we finished First Peter, and we were, um, Chris Black came up to me and said, why don't you do Second Peter? Uh, and the reason why she asked me about that is, frankly, she said, there's some things in there that are hard to understand, that are unusual. And we're going to run into one of them today uh, in, the, in the text that we, we've read. There are some things in here that uh, are uh, quite unusual and, so, uh, and, and things that, that, that are uh, unique uh, to this uh, particular epistle. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, be in Second uh, Peter probably till about the time school's out, and then uh, we'll uh, look at some psalms. Uh, but what I want to do over the next eight or nine weeks or so, is to just kind of go through uh, this text and these, these texts uh, bit by bit. And, uh, uh, because my guess is you probably haven't spent a lot of time studying and reading Second Peter, uh, so this will be a, a good opportunity for us uh, before the summer hits to, to do that. So um, the text is, is printed uh, this morning in the bulletin and also uh, up on the screens behind me. And it, it might be helpful... Um, for you to kind of hold on to this, have this in your lap, so that uh, as we go back and forth and re- refer to things, you would be able to, um, uh, well, just to see how the, the logic of this text flows. So, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, this is the Word of God. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of of sinful desire. So, uh, what I want to do this morning, there's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, stuff about partaking in the divine nature and excellence and glory and, and, uh, uh, all, all of that kind of stuff. It's, there's some pretty heady stuff here. There's some pretty, uh, hard things. And, you know, we don't do hard things. You know, I don't come to church for hard things. I come to church for easy things. Uh, uh, hard things are Monday through Friday. Church is supposed to be uh, low key. So the, the fact is, we have to kind of take a little bit of time to, to 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 think through some of this stuff and to make and to draw some practical applications. Because you may hear that and you may think, you know, well, partaking of the divine nature, how is that going to help me with my boss, who's such a jerk, when I got to go to work tomorrow, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work our way through. Uh, uh, this text and kind of come to grips with some very practical applications, understand what the meaning is, but also come up with some very practical applications. And what I want to do is I want to kind of begin at the end, because one of the things that, that Peter gets at here at the very end is he says uh, that uh, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
One of the things, one of the things that he is going to get at over and over and over again in this text, and one of the things that he's going to get at in this book, and one of the things that the scriptures are about, uh, is something that runs totally counter to the way in which we modern or postmodern or post-postmodern people think about the world. We think that the solution to problems in our world is knowledge. Right? If you can just know, if you get the information and you just know the right things, then you can solve problems. Right? That's, that's the way we think about it. That's what technology does for us. That, that if we can just get the right, uh, things together, the right amount of knowledge, that sort of stuff, then, then we can solve our problems. He says that the whole part of our problem is not knowledge. But it's desire. And in fact, in our uh, theological tradition, that uh, we we wholeheartedly agree with that. One of the things that we believe, one of the things that I uh, believed, uh, is that the issue for us certainly isn't so much about knowledge, even though truth matters and 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 there are facts that that must be believed. The 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 the, the bottom line for us is is that what the gospel teaches us is what to desire and how to desire it, and how much to desire it. Because the, the fact that we are sinful and the fact that we are broken has less to do with what we know and more to do with what we love. And so uh, for most people, for most, most of us, uh, in fact, I would say for all of us, the problem of sin for us is a problem of disordered desires and disordered loves. And so what, what he's going to get at here today is he's going to challenge us by talking to us about the love of God, the grace of God, the, the work of God for us, and the, the mercy of God, all these great things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, so that that will reorient our desires in such a way that it will change us more and more into the people that, uh, that he's designed us to be. And so one of the things I, I came across I remember reading this when I was in college from uh, Willa Cather. She's a uh, um, a writer uh, from the 1800s, and I've I've thought about this a lot uh, my, uh, for the last 30 years. The world is little, people are little, human life is little. There's only one big thing: desire. Really, and I think that's that's probably true, and you know that to be. Uh, the, the case for you, because the, the fact is what drives us, what motivates us, what challenges us, what what causes us to be afraid, what causes us to be happy is all centered around the things that we love and the things that we desire. Right. And so I would say to you, if you're sitting here this morning, thinking, well, I don't desire very much. Then I would say you're almost dead because because the fact is you cannot say you're alive Life means having desires, right? Uh, uh, seeking to love things, right? And, and, and to be loved. And so that's exactly what, uh, what, what he's going to get at here is that our problem, the issue that we have, the, the reason why we're in the mess that we're in is our disordered desires, right? But he's going to get at that by challenging us uh, with the grace and the mercy of God lavished upon us in these very profound ways in Jesus Christ. So, first things first in this passage. One of the things that you may have noticed is that this guy who wrote this, Simeon Peter, and you're like, who's that? Is that a typo? <laughs> right? I thought it was Simon Peter. What's what is this? What is what is what does this mean? Well, useless trivial information coming here. Did you know 
that between 0 and 200 A.D., the most common name given to boys in Palestine was the name Simon. Now, I don't know how they know that. My guess says it's from burial records, would be my guess. But uh, it's the most common male name. Well, uh, then why is it Simeon? Well, because Simon is actually the Greek form of the name Simeon. Remember, when you, uh, in the Old Testament, when you talk about the, uh, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, there's one named Simeon? Well, that's, if, if he were Greek, he wouldn't be Simeon, he'd be Simon. So for whatever reason, and we'll get into this in the coming weeks, uh, Peter uses the Palestinian, the, the Semitic, the Jewish form of his name at the very beginning uh, of, of, uh, of this epistle. And so one of the things that you have to understand about that is that this, this if you read, if you, this afternoon, if you sit down and you read Second Peter, it's going to read very differently from First Peter. Very different vocabulary, uh, very different themes, that sort of thing. And in fact, most people uh, uh, who've studied this, and I think this is true, there's more similarity in Second Peter to the New Testament epistle of Jude than there is to First Peter. Um, which is, and we'll, as we go through this over the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll unpack more and more of what that means. But at the very outset here, one of the things that we have to see is that Peter uses his name, the name that he uses at the very beginning of this epistle, is the, the Jewish form uh, of his name. The second thing to note about this text, these first four verses, is the passive nature of what is being talked about. And what I mean by that is, is that what Peter says to these, these people who are receiving this letter is that God is the one who's taking the initiative. God is the one who is moving towards them. God is the one who is, who is doing these things. So the first thing that he, he says here is, uh, Simon, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things that word, that, that language there of who have obtained, that is a very passive way of saying that. That, that this, uh, what they have obtained here, this righteousness, this standing before God, is something that God simply gave them. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They didn't go out and, and find it for themselves. They didn't go out and build a business that gave it to them or build some sort of enterprise that brought this to them. They simply received it because God simply gave it to them. Now, one of the things that you have to note about this is something really remarkable that he says. He says that, you are, that he is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, I know you, and I know you evaluate. You're sizing people up all the time. You, you look at people and you, and, and you have certain things whereby you evaluate them. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a fellow sitting here, a dear brother sitting in, in the church today, uh, who the first time I met him, years and years ago, he looked at me and drew conclusions about where I went to college based on how I was dressed. He was close, <laughs> right? You do it too. You evaluate people based on the way they talk. 
You evaluate people on the way they're dressed. You evaluate people based on who they're married to. You evaluate people based on whether or not they have kids. You evaluate people based on who they date. You evaluate people based on their shoes. You evaluate people uh, based on uh, all sorts of things like that. And you look around and you're like, they look like somebody I'd like to know because they look like this way or they're like this. Or, or you look at somebody and you think, wow, they are such a godly person. They're, they're so so smart when it comes to the gospel and, and, and they know so much Bible and all those kinds of things. What Peter says today is that all of that is a bunch of junk. He's, a, he's an apostle, certainly, but a servant of Jesus Christ. And you and I, whether you're a, a long-time mature Christian, a moderately mature Christian, a barely Christian, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in terms of your standing before God because what he says is to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, one day you'll see Peter. You and he will stand before God and his bar of justice. And God's going to look at you And he's going to look at Peter, and he's going to admit you into heaven based on the same thing. The righteousness that Jesus Christ earned for you. Peter goes to heaven because of the righteousness of Christ. You and I go to heaven because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter that he's an apostle. That's great. He has authority. He has a particular role. But that does not direct or shape in any way his standing before God. So that person in your small group who irritates the living daylights out of you, that, that, person, <laughs> that, that, that person in your, your Sunday school class that you'd like to muzzle, that, that, uh, uh, the, these people that you're like, they're so immature, you know, or, or that person that you're like, wow, they're barely Christians. They have the same righteousness that Peter did. Okay? So, so when it comes to standing here, what Peter says is he's an apostle, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, he has unique authority, but his standing, his righteousness before God is the same as yours, and yours is the same as his. Uh, so secondly, he says that grace be multiplied to us. Now, what, what does he mean by that? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Isn't it funny how that grace, the favor of God, is connected to peace? Uh, and I would submit to you your understanding and your ap- uh, 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 application of peace in your life, your ability to rest uh, in the knowledge and the goodness of, of God, it rests upon your understanding of grace. The fact that you reside and you live under the favor of God and, and, and your understanding of that and you see in the work of Jesus Christ the favor and the blessing of God upon you is, is the degree to which you have peace. The degree to which you're able to rest. The degree to which you're able to trust him. And this, this grace, this favor and this peace that we have come to us not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, but simply because by the, the work of God, we've heard the gospel, we've heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and uh, we recognize and believe that we are under his favor. 
He says in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted. He uses that language twice. A grant is something that is simply given to you. A grant is something that you cannot earn, that you cannot deserve. It is something that is simply just given to you out of the goodness of the heart of the giver. Um, a few weeks ago when I was visiting my mom and dad, uh, they're sorting through a lot of old stuff, you know. And when you're 86, you have a lot of old stuff, you know. They're old stuff. I mean, good night. You know, they've been, they've been around forever. They, they have, and, and there are some things that they've kept forever and ever and ever. And one of the things that my dad showed me is he has the land grant that his great-grandfather got of the farm that they had in East Tennessee. Now, that farm doesn't exist anymore because um, <clears throat> one of the things that's true of our family, we're a southern family, but uh, everybody in my family since 1934 has been a very committed Republican because a Democratic president uh, flooded their farm, built a, a dam. You've heard about the TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority, what a great thing it was. Don't, don't say that to the people in my family because their home place now is underwater. So they don't like, if they could dig up Franklin Roosevelt and shoot him, they probably would. So um, um, I, I remember my grandfather uh, being very bitter about that in the 60s. Um, but there's the language in this document that my dad has of the grant of land that was given to his grandfather by his great-grandfather, and that it was simply a gift. And so, so one of the things that you have to see about this is that Peter begins this letter by saying to us, listen, you have righteousness, you have grace, you have peace, you have the favor of God, you have the blessing that Jesus Christ lived, died, and and rose again to give you, and you can rest in that, you can trust that, because all of these things have been given to you. And then he says, all of this is through knowledge of him that we have power and everything necessary for life and godliness. Now, my guess is that you would quibble with that, that you came to church today not, with a, not thinking about all the great things that God's given you in Christ, but thinking about the things that you don't have. And, and that's not all bad. That's one of the things that worship does for us. It exposes our desires. It exposes because we hear the goodness of God and we look at our lives and we think, well, I need, I need help here. Well, what he says to us is that in Christ, you have everything that you need for life and godliness. And so the fact is, the Lord will give you whatever is required to live the life that he's called you to live. Now, um, one of the things that I think is, is interesting about this is, is that he doesn't say through knowledge of him we have whatever. He says we have power and everything necessary for life and godliness. Um, when, when I, we are in probably the craziest, well, I don't know if it's the craziest, but... Uh, we're in a crazy political season, aren't we? I think, I think most people think that. And I, part of the reason why we are is because um, we, as a, as a culture, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, 
independent or communist, whatever you are, you're addicted to outrage. I mean, really, you know, you don't, you don't need a cup of coffee when you get up in the morning if you can watch the news. You can, get, you can see that, get outraged at something, woo, you're ready to go, right? So, so there's just a lot of outrage. And uh, I, think it is, uh, I, I think it's really terrible uh, in, in many ways. But in many ways, it's also kind of entertaining if you don't take it very seriously. I wish... We were, uh, well, I, I wish our political system worked the way it did back maybe a couple of hundred years ago. You, you, we had a president once by the name of James Garfield. I think he would have been a great president except he got shot. <laughs> um, he was a congressman from Ohio, and he showed up at his party's convention uh, just to be a good guy to show up at his convention, and on the 37th ballot, of his convention, they nominated him to be president. 37th ballot. And then he ran for president. You know how he ran for president? He gave three speeches from his front porch in Ohio. (laughs) Three speeches. And he won in a landslide. Right? Um. I, as I as I as I think about that, I think I wish I wish it was was more that way, right? And so that you would just have this sense of okay, they're okay. There's not a lot of outrage. There's not a lot of anger. There's not a lot of intensity, and you just voted and went on about your business. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching one of an interview. Uh, a town hall, whatever that means, with one of the candidates and his twin daughters were there, both 16 years old, and they asked uh, them how would they describe their dad. And the first thing out of the 16-year-old girl's mouth was, he's a godly man. Now, I don't know if he's a godly man or not. I don't know if he promised her a new car, (laughs) if she would say that on CNN. Maybe he did. I don't know. That's, That's what I would do. Uh, but uh, <laughs> right, um, but I thought, what a profound thing uh, that someone would describe you as godly, someone who is shaped and formed by the gospel to look more and more like Jesus Christ. So all of this, these things that come here come to us by means and by way of the gospel, of the work of Jesus Christ for us. We receive these things, and as we receive these things, they change the way our desires operate in the world. John Piper says this. We need to pause and stress this. The Christian faith is not merely a set of doctrines to be accepted. It is a power to be experienced. It's a tragic thing to ask people if they know the Lord and have them start listing the things they believe about the Lord. Brothers and sisters, believing things about Jesus Christ will save no one. The devils are the most orthodox believers under heaven. It is divine power that saves. If the power of God does not flow into your life and make you godly, you're not Christ's. 
All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The mark of sonship is divine power, and the mark of power is godliness, which means a love for the things of God and a walk in the ways of God, right? A love for the things of God and a walk in the ways of God. Something worth, worth thinking about, right? So he, he begins here in this, very, in this text with these very meaty and, and intense things. Now, one of the things that I want you to note about this is, is that the ESV mistranslates, and I hesitate to say that because it's going to make you wonder what else is mistranslated in there, but stick with me on this. You'll, you'll understand what I'm getting at. The ESV mistranslates the last word in this text. It says that because of these desires sinful or evil, the word sinful or evil doesn't appear in the original text. It simply means desire, intense desire. And so, so bear with me here as I give you the logic of why this uh, uh, fits with the issue of, of the, the divine nature. There's nothing wrong with intense desire. There's nothing wrong with having some sort of sense that we were created to desire great things and that we were, that we were created to long, that we were created to, to love, right? And, and, and indeed, even uh, to worship, right? So how does that connect then with us getting the divine nature and then our, uh, <clears throat> our desires to be, be reoriented? Well, one of the things that you have to note about this is is that this should this these words that you participate that you partake in the divine nature should jump off the page at you right if second peter were written today many orthodox believers would certainly reject him as new age right uh because it sounds a little fishy to say that you partake in the divine nature it sounds like you're going to become a god and i when i look at you i don't see anybody out here who i would mistake for a god <laughs> uh, there's some impressive people in here, no doubt. But do I see anybody in here that I think uh, there are some people here, though, I would say, who are godlike? Yes, but there, there's nobody here that it strikes me that they are participating in the divine nature. Next slide. So, so in what way then do we become like God? Well, to get at this, we must see the rest of the context, right? What he says here is. Is so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, you hear that word, that the connection here is that we get the divine nature because we hear the promises of God and then we uh, reject, turn our backs on the corruption that is in the world. Now, you hear that word corruption and you think bad, sinful, negative behavior. It is that. But the word here for corruption means things that break, means things that wear out, means things that that uh, that don't work right anymore. You know, uh, there's a great business in America today by uh, making knee replacements and hip replacements. That's an evidence of corruption, right? Not 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 that anybody's doing anything evil there, but your hips wear out, your knees wear out, so you need something to, to replace them. Um, this uh, this. I have a I have a great lawnmower. I love my lawnmower. I bought this lawnmower 13 years ago because I wrongly thought my middle school sons would make a lot of money cutting grass. I don't think they've ever touched this lawnmower. Uh, it wouldn't crank at the beginning of the spring when I need to cut my ga- gr- grass, so I took it in to get it worked on. It's going to cost a lot to get it fixed. 
And the guy says, hey, do you want to spend this money on this? Because for $100 more, you can get a new one. I'm like, I don't want a new one. I like my old one. Uh, and I know it's wearing out, but, you know, we got a lot of memories together. And so, uh, so, the, so, so, so just fix it. Well, that thing's wearing out. Pretty soon, there won't be anything that was original to that lawnmower left, right? It's, everything on it is going to have to be replaced. Well, that's the nature of our world. Things are breaking. Things are falling apart. That's a part of what it means to live in a fallen world, right? Now, we got this way not because of any kind of law of physics or whatever, but we got this way because of desire, The scriptures tell us that when the world was being renewed every day, where there was no breakdown, where there was no no curse, no fall, no nothing that wore out, before that, what happened was Eve looks at the fruit and she desires it. And she desires it, even though God has told her not to eat it, she looks at it and she desires it because she believes it will make her wise, like God. And that desire overwhelms the clear revelation to God of her about what it is that she's not supposed to do. And the fact is she takes the fruit, she eats it, she gives it to Adam, he eats it. And as a result of that desire, gone wrong, there was nothing wrong with wanting to be wise. It was just the wrong way to go about it. Corruption has entered into the world. Next slide. So... uh, how then do we get at this? And what does good, does the divine, being a partaker of the divine nature help me in this issue of desire? Well, the divine nature is unchanging in its perfection and his will to save and bless a people for himself. God does not change in his essential character. Unlike everything that we see around us that changes, that breaks down, that goes away, that rots, that falls apart, God doesn't do that. God remains the constant and the same. And he is a, does not change in his essential character. In fact, he's eternal in his characteristics. He is eternally powerful. He's eternally good. He's eternally just. He's eternally merciful. Always. Always. He never changes. He is like this all the time in his determination to be to us a, a, a savior, to be to us a God, to draw us uh, to himself. And so we see this, as Peter says here, most clearly by believing and hearing his very great promises to us, right? He says here that we get a sense of this as by which he's granted to us in his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption uh, that is in the world as a result of our sinful desires. Next slide. So, What's interesting to me about this is, I wish he would tell me what exactly which promises it is he's talking about. He doesn't say which one they are, because I'd like to know them. I'd like to grab hold of those promises, because that seems like that would be a a, a good thing uh, to rest in. But I don't think he has to tell us that exactly, because what is a promise? What is a promise about? Well, promises are about the future. You don't promise to do something yesterday. You promise to do something that's ahead of you. I promise my daughter that I will go pick her up from school, right, uh, in two weeks. And so uh, that, is a, that is a thing that she counts on. That is a thing that she looks forward to, I hope. And that is something that, you know, that we, uh, that, I, that, that I will do for her. Well, God makes promises to his people. 
whereby he says to us that because you have my grace, because you have my favor, I will see you through to the end. I will raise you up on the last day. I will give you uh, everything that you need. I will be with you. I will be for you. I will provide for you. I I will uh, uh, oversee you. I will protect you. I'll be your rock. I'll be your fortress. I will be for you, right? And so that what happens to us here is as we hear these promises, these very great and rich promises that he has for us, it changes us because it gives us hope. And so that hope is the guiding issue here. And it's what shapes my understanding and my desires. And you know this is true, right? If you have hope that God is going to deliver you, if you have hope that God is going to be for you, if you have hope that God is going to meet your desires, if you have hope that God will will fulfill in you and, and give you everything that you need for life and godliness, it changes your desire. But if you believe that God's not going to meet you, if you believe that God's not going to help you, if you believe that God is not going to keep his promise, then there's no reason why you wouldn't give in to a sinful desire for the relief that you seek. Right? The world's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. And so we need the promise of God to, to shore us up, to give us a sense uh, of, of, of his presence, of his care, of the reality of the gospel. And if we don't have that, we become hopeless. And when we become hopeless, our desires overwhelm us and we give in to these things that we long for and we find ourselves suddenly in a very difficult place. Listen, this afternoon... Ask yourself and ask God to ask you, how does the grace of God, how does the favor that you have in Jesus Christ shape and guide and direct your desires? The things that you long for, the things that you want to see, the things that you want to experience, the things you want to feel, the the words you want to hear. How does the gospel do that? And as he does that, As he probes you with that, rest in the fact that you have his favor, that all of these things are true, and that we have the promise of God, the truth of God, that every promise made to you is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He will see you through to the end, and you can entrust yourself and your desires into his hands. Let me pray. Lord, we need a sense of this today. Thanks so much uh, that you, um, well, that you bless us in this way. Lord, we, we confess that we are often confused and overwhelmed by desire. I pray that you would help us today to place our hope and see uh, your promises as fulfilled to us in Jesus Christ and that we would entrust ourselves more and more to the God who is unchanging in his determination to bless and to love and to provide. Lord, I pray for those among us today who have given up on hope and instead have uh, turned uh, for, um, well, just relief in the world in which they live to things that ultimately lead to death. Pray that you would be gracious and merciful. Pray that you would um, remind uh, those of us who struggle with that, with the great thing that you've done for us in Jesus Christ, how you've provided how you've blessed us, how you are for us. And Lord, I I pray today uh, for those who um, 
are struggling uh, because it seems like you're not providing everything necessary for godliness, uh, that you would inform and direct and challenge, reveal uh, the great provision that you have made for us in the gospel, the great provision you've made for us in the truth and by your spirit what you have done. So help us, give us grace, help us to trust you, and help us to press on in the hope of your promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.